job, worship team. Always do a great job leading us in worship. I was telling the first service, I think Pastor Jed does an awesome job at picking out the songs uh, each week. And I don't know if you, when you're singing the song, sometimes it's easy to sing a song, especially if you've sung it before, maybe some of these Christmas songs or whatever, and uh, just kind of sing them. And you don't really meditate on the words, but meditate on some of those words periodically. And uh, that second, the third song I think it was that we sang, uh, The Rock Won't Move, The Word is Strong. Think about that. And we're going to get into the word in just a moment. But the, the line that got me this morning was, his love can't be undone. And some of you need to hear that. Some of you need to think about that. That means you can't do anything to make him not love you anymore. And there's nothing you've done that's made him love you. And so you didn't earn his love in the first place. He chose to love you. And so there's nothing you can do to make him not love you. And so some of you need to know that today. And everything else is bonus material that we're going to get to today. Uh, but just think about like this. The, the songs even are, are preaching messages to us into our hearts and hopefully encouraging you. I know some of you need to be encouraged periodically. Some of you need to... Uh, be challenged, and so, Lord willing, uh, God does that continually through those things, but you can't undo his love, and so I don't know what happened this past week, but you didn't undo his love. He still loves you, and I'm glad you're here, and it's Christmas, by the way. We're celebrating Christmas at Southbridge. I don't know if you noticed up on the stage, so Merry Christmas. Uh, thank you so much. That's so kind. I stood up in the first service. I don't even know how I preach. A college student in the front row had a Santa Claus mask on, and I... I don't know in the world, but uh, thank you. You're such a kind, I think we're going to have a better sermon now, because Santa Claus is gone, and, uh, <laughs> and I love you, David. Uh, but uh, we're going to jump into the series that we're starting for Christmas called Dangerous Decisions. Before we do that, I just want to mention a couple things to you. It's in your worship program. Our Christmas Eve service is going to be this year on Christmas Eve. Mark your calendars. Uh, but in the worship program, it tells you how to get tickets. You have to have a ticket to come. They're free, but you do need a ticket, and please don't take more than you need, because we want to make sure we have... Uh, every seat filled up if possible. And so you, you can find out in your worship program how to get those tickets, how to sign up for that. Also, all through the Christmas season this year, we're going to have a table out in the lobby for Compassion International. Now, two years ago, we did a Christmas series called Compassionate Christmas. And part of the application was our whole church, uh, most a bunch of people in our church, at least families, sponsor children, specifically from Bolivia is where we targeted. And so you, you can sponsor children out there. If you want to know more about Compassion International, go to that table. But then there's also another way that everybody can be involved, whether you're going to sponsor a child, not sponsor a child this year. And the way that you can do that is just every Sunday when you come to church, hop on your Facebook page and um, check in for charity. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but we'll make a donation every time in, on Facebook. And I have my phone up here, but somebody even showed me how to do it. If I can figure it out, you can do it. When you get in the parking lot, just p- open up Facebook if you have a Facebook account. Hit check in. It's one of the options on your phone if you have a smartphone. And then hashtag compassion or check in for compassion under Southbridge Fellowship. So hit Southbridge Fellowship, check in for compassion. If you can figure out what I just said... <laughs> Then we're going to give money to some kids, uh, and we're giving money to the Vulnerable Child Fund that they have. You can learn more about that on their website, but it's for kids that their parents are sick or they're in high-risk areas, and so every time you do that, it won't even cost you any money. Just take, you can do it right now if you'd like to, or just when you're in the parking lot as you're leaving, uh, hop on, hit check-in, check-in for compassion, and uh, we'll make a donation to them. And we're going to start our series. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. If you want to grab your Bibles right now, if you have them, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll start the Dangerous Decisions series uh, here this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Father, we get together as a church family. Thank you for every guest that's here today. Uh, Thank you for every person that will hear these words, whether it's online or here. And I pray that these will be words of life. I pray that you'll speak truth uh, through me this morning. I pray as we open up your scriptures, God, we're so thankful for your word and that you have spoken to us, that you don't just try and make us figure it out. And that's not based on our sincerity. We know a lot of people are sincerely wrong about you. And God, you guide us in truth. Will you guide us in truth this morning? And will you help us to live it with grace? and uh, show your love that can't be undone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
Like I said, we'll be in Matthew chapter 1. If you want to get a head start and go ahead and jump there, you can. But we're doing this series called Dangerous Decisions. My daughter asked me in the car on the, uh, the way here last week. I was driving, and my oldest daughter had a little invitation card from last year, and it said, Tis the Season. I think that was last year's series. Maybe it was several years ago. But we've done a lot of traditional series. She said, Are we doing Tis the Season this year? I said, No, we're doing a series called Dangerous Decisions. Silence. What does that have to do with Christmas, Dad? Exactly what some of you are probably thinking right now. Before we jump in, though, let me just ask you this. What's the most dangerous thing you think you'll do this Christmas season? Think about the things maybe you've done. Maybe you've gone to the mall, yeah, parking, stealing somebody's parking spot could be dangerous. Thinking about myself, last week, Thanksgiving week, I had uh, an annual exam, went to the doctor, and when I was there, uh, they were going to take blood and stuff, and so they ended up saying, do you want to get a flu shot? And I hadn't gotten a flu shot in like a decade, but I thought, you're sticking needles in me anyways. Okay, go ahead. I got a flu shot. I went home and told my family about it. One of my daughters runs up and says, you got a flu shot? People die from getting flu shots. For real? Like, I didn't even know that. And so I don't know if she heard that from somebody at school. I don't know why she said that, but she said that to me. And then the next day, my wife got the flu. I was so thankful I got the flu shot. My wife still has the flu. She's in bed actually right now at home, and it's been several days. And she had the flu on Thanksgiving Day, which meant we were supposed to have all of our family over, like cousins and nephews and everybody. They didn't come over, so I made dinner, which is dangerous uh, too, by the way. And uh, I, I made burgers. We're not traditionalists. We ate the burgers. My wife decided to go back to bed. The kids were going to play, and so they were just relaxing. I said, I'm going to go shopping. Like, if we're just hanging out and family's not here, I'm going shopping. Same daughter comes up and says, people die going shopping today. I made it home alive, believe it or not. And when I say dangerous decisions in this series, I'm not just talking about doing dangerous stuff. I'm not talking about Black Friday shopping, for sure. Uh, I'm not talking about getting a flu shot. I'm not talking about running out into oncoming traffic. I'm not talking about uh, bungee jumping, just doing some random thing that seems dangerous. I'm talking about faith decisions. Because oftentimes when we step up by faith, God's sovereign, he's in control, but we don't know the outcome, and we don't have promises that we're not going to get killed. We don't have promises we're not going to lose our reputation. We don't have promises that certain things aren't going to happen. And that's really where the whole Christmas story starts. I told you it would be from Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at a passage of scripture that I bet you've probably never heard preached. If you have heard it preached, I bet at least when you read your Bibles, you probably just skim over it. It's in Matthew chapter 1. It's the first book in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1, the very first verse is the basis for this series. It says, a record of the genealogy of of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then verses 2 through 16, give that genealogy. I'll read some of it to you. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. His brothers are like, hey, my name didn't even get in there. And his brothers. Judah the father of Perez, not the tabloid guy, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. She's got a story. Read that one. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. That is, if you're going to name a son, that is a strong name. Archie, you have another boy. Ram. That'll destroy your house. Some boy named Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. <laughs> I did it. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon or Salmon. Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Have you heard of her? Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and then goes through David's line. And so you can read that, and it's just like a bunch of ancient hard names, and then you've got like David in there, Ram, a couple, a couple other ones. And it can read almost like, honey, are these the people we're supposed to buy Christmas presents for? I don't even know them. Are they in our family? Or who's coming over for Thanksgiving dinner? It's, just, it's a family list. It's Jesus' family. But it goes for thousands of years. And this is the Christmas story, because God used many of the decisions of the people in these stories what brought the deliverance of the Savior of the world. 
That's why Matthew starts with this. We oftentimes read over it because it's just a list of a bunch of names. But each one of those names represents a story. And many of those people made faith decisions, dangerous decisions, because they didn't know what the outcome was going to be, that leads to a Savior being born. And so we're going to do this series called Dangerous Decisions, really using it synonymously with taking the next step in your faith journey. And so as we get started, and for the month of December, I hope you'll be asking yourself this question. What faith decision does God want you to make this Christmas? What's your next step in your faith journey? That's really the question. What faith decision does God want you to make? And we're going to look at faith decisions other people have made, but what faith decision does God want you to make this Christmas? And it can be lots of things. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, I already know and I know because the Bible tells me. I already know that God's faith decision for you, he's not willing that any would perish. He wants you to trust Jesus as a Savior. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, then he's got other faith. It doesn't stop there. He begins a good work in you at that point, but then it continues. He continues to do a work, and you continue to take steps of faith. And so what's the next step of faith for you? For some, it's obedience. For some, maybe you just trusted Jesus as Savior, so you need to commit to being baptized. And for some, it starts to become all kinds of other things. Maybe it's a generosity decision. Maybe it's a, a purity decision. Maybe you have to forgive somebody. Maybe you need to take a stand for your faith. And you don't know how that's going to turn out. Maybe it'll cost you your job. Maybe it'll cost you your reputation. Maybe it'll put strain in relationship. You don't know. And so it's a da- if your goal for Christmas prior to coming to church today was comfort and convenience, I promise you, if you take a faith decision, it will be dangerous because it'll compromise your comfort. And so what's the next faith decision for you? What decision does God want you to make this Christmas? And what we're going to do, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 2, it says the first name in this list, Abraham, the father of Isaac. What did that mean? And so turn from the first book of the New Testament to the first book of the Bible. In the book of Genesis, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 22 today, verses 1 through 14, and we're going to see a man whose faith not only started back in chapter 12, but continues to be tested throughout his life. In Genesis chapter 22, Looking at verses 1 through 14, we'll start off just reading the first couple verses, and it's Abraham. Who is this Abraham guy? He's the father of several faiths, actually. Islam claims him as the father of faith. Judaism claims him as the father of faith, and so does Christianity. So who is this guy, and what were these faith decisions that he made? And the faith decisions that he made, God ultimately used to deliver us the Christmas story. And so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's a foreshadowing of ultimately what the Christmas story is all about. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham, the father of Isaac. Well, Abraham wasn't the father of Isaac his whole life. His story actually starts back in Genesis chapter 12. And you can read it, and I'm going to give you his whole story, but just a summary is he had a jacked up background. His, back, his story, the family he came from, would be great daytime television talk show stuff. And so I don't know if, you, if you're laughing, it probably means you watch that. I'm just kidding. Uh, but you, if, if you know what I'm talking about, it's like... Um, dysfunctional. He puts the dis in dysfunctional. It's messed up. He comes from a town called Ur. Ur is a place where they're idol worshipers. They're known for worshiping the moon. His dad's name is Terah. Tell me that didn't cause Abraham problems when he was in junior high. Your dad's name is Terah? <laughs> Sorry if you're named Terah and you're a man. But this dude, he's got problems. He marries his half-sister. That's cool, apparently, in Ur. You can just roll like that. They can't have any children. That's problematic. He's with all these idol-worshipping moon worshipers in this town. And then God steps in and calls him out of that background. And so some of you might think that God can't use you. It's almost like God chooses to use people like this sometimes, intentionally to show his glory and his grace. At 75 years old, Abraham 
who's at the time named Abram, his name means proud father, has no children, is 75 years old. God calls him, you come follow me, you go, you don't know where you're going. I'm going to give you three promises. We've got hundreds of promises in the scripture that we can live by to help strengthen our faith that we can cling to. Abram had three. A land, a seed, and a blessing. I'm going to give you land more than you could imagine. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to bless through your loins, Abraham, through your body. I am going to give a child that will ultimately bless the entire world. It's through his line that Jesus Christ is going to be born, that a Savior is going to be delivered. And what happens is he takes a step of faith and he follows God in Genesis chapter 12. Then he has multiple tests between Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 22. In chapter 22, he's been following God for about 40 years. So if any of you think... I kind of put in my time. If you're still living and breathing, God's not done with you. In Genesis chapter 21, Isaac is born. This is about 25 years after Abraham first gets that promise. He waits for 25 years. Then it happens, and then Genesis chapter 22 starts sometime later. We learn from the details of this story later in Genesis chapter 22. This is about 15 or 20 years later. And so Abraham's been waiting to have this son his whole life. He finally has this son. It's about 15 or 20 years later after his birth in Genesis chapter 22. And it says this, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Don't miss that it's God testing Abraham. God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains, I will tell you about. It's God's testing Abraham's faith. No, it is God doing the testing. Most of us don't like tests, but think about what is a test for? A test is, it's, if a doctor gives you a test, I told you I had my blood drawn. If a doctor takes my t- gives me a test, he's not trying to raise my cholesterol or lower my cholesterol. He's trying to find out what's true about my cholesterol. He's not trying to give me a disease or take away a disease. He's trying to find, reveal if I have any diseases. If the mechanic looks at your car... You may think they're trying to cost you money, but if they're a good, honest mechanic, somebody said they are, uh, if they're a good, honest mechanic, then what they're doing is that they're trying to reveal if there's already a problem in your car. God is the one who tests our faith. Notice Satan's the one who tempts us. God doesn't tempt us. God tests us. There's a difference. When Satan tempts us, he's trying to show the worst in us. When God tests us, he's revealing the best in us. When Satan tempts us, he's trying to destroy us. When God tests us, he's refining us and revealing what's in us. And what he's revealing in this test of faith is not what we know in our head, but he's revealing what's in our hearts. And today we're going to talk about how God tests our faith. As we ask this question, what faith step does God want us to take? And when God tests our faith, one of the things he reveals to us is what we love. God's tests reveal what we love. And that's ultimately what he's doing here with Abraham. It's interesting, though, just to note that Abraham doesn't know he's being tested. The narrator of this story until in Genesis chapter 22 is telling, it's not like Abraham got tapped on the shoulder one morning and like, today's going to be a test. Abraham's just living his life. The narrator is telling us this for a reason. He's saying, this is a test. Remember that? I remember when I was a little kid. This is a test. Only a test of the emergency broadcast system. It's changed now, whatever the name is. There may be a hurricane. There might be a flood. This is just a test, though. Don't freak out. We're just going to annoy you with some noise. And you know it's just a test because people don't panic. Like, oh, it's just a test. I don't have to worry. It's just a test. What the narrator's telling us in this story is this. This is just a test for Abraham. God's not interested in child sacrifice. 
That's what he's telling us. So from, some of you might be new to the Bible. They're like, what is God asking for? He condemns child sacrifice throughout the scriptures. The prophets condemn it. People did it at that time. People do it now. God's not okay with it. What he's saying here is that this is a test. Don't worry about Isaac. Isaac's not going to die. Sorry, spoiler alert, end of this story. Isaac doesn't die. But focus in on Abraham's faith. Abraham doesn't know this is just a test. He's only got three promises. He doesn't have the whole Bible. And so imagine you're Abraham and he's tested. The word tested there is used sometimes to talk about uh, going through a trial, uh, going through the heat. And Abraham doesn't know he's being tested. Some of you are being tested in your faith right now and you don't even know it. It's called life. Circumstances are happening. Pressure comes. Do you know what James says about it? In James in James chapter 1 and verse 2. Now, I don't know anybody who does this, but James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And look what he says next. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. He's talking about the refining there in James. Now, I don't know how many people got in a car accident yesterday and were like, Yes! Got to deal with the insurance company, injuries, all this stuff. It's going to be awesome. James says, You should know you have a good God. God's the one that's testing your faith. Guess what he's going to do? He's going to do something good. He's testing Abraham here. But think about how hard it must have been for Abraham. He's wanted children. He's 75 years old by the time he gets called. So we oftentimes say a story starts in Genesis chapter 12. His story started 75 years before Genesis chapter 12. And he and his wife weren't able to have children. That was an even bigger deal than it is now. Now, if you have ever struggled to have children, you know what this is like. If you've ever met someone who struggled to have children, it's terrible. But then it was like, that's not only are you the kid and the one you love, that's your future plan. And then Abraham, his, first, his name is Abram when God calls him, it means proud father. God changes his name later to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Names were a big deal, and people knew what those names meant back then. I heard one time uh, Stephen Davey, a pastor at Colonial Baptist Church down in Cary, he gave a fake conversation of someone, imagine you met Abram, and he's proud father, and you're like, oh, where are your kids? I don't have any. And then you met him, oh, 20 some years later. Hey, what's your name now? Abraham, multitude, father of a multitude. Where are your kids? I still don't have any. It would seem like God was mocking him. Imagine the pain and the pressure that Abraham's been through. He's been through other tests in his life. Sometimes he passes them, sometimes he fails them. If you look at the tests that have to do with the land, he seems to do well with the tests with the land. He seems to really struggle with the tests with the seed. When Lot wants some property, you, Lot, you take whatever property you want. I'll trust God to take care of it. He passes that test. Genesis chapter 16, it's been 10 years since God gave the promise you're going to have a child. He hasn't had a child. His wife hasn't had a child. So he's looking at it. They're trying to figure out another plan. So he sleeps with his wife's servant, Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant. It causes some problems, by the way. He failed that test. If you watch the news today, there's some problems in the Middle East. I don't know if you've seen that or not. It all stems back to Genesis chapter 16. That's where it started. Ishmael, the Arab people. And Isaac, oh, the, Palestinian, the, the Jewish people, people of Israel. There's some problems there. It all started there. He failed the test. God's gracious. God still uses Abraham. He's still the father of our faith. He wasn't perfect. He failed some tests. And guess what? There's a consequence when we do that. So think about what it was like for Abraham. He has to send Ishmael off. And then Isaac, he's got Isaac. He's had Isaac for about 15, 16, 20 years the apple of his eye. Think about how much this child would be loved. All those years they waited, now he's here. If I'm Abraham, I'm thinking to myself, we're just going to cruise. Like, I've lived my life of faith. Now I'm kicking it into neutral. I'm just going to enjoy the fruits of my faith. And God says, you're still breathing. 
I still have a plan for you. And now you're going to get the ultimate test because now I'm going to test what you love. And look at what he says. Look what happens. The narrator tells us it's a test. And then God said to him, Abraham, verse 1. And Abraham replies. This is like bonus material. This isn't part of the message. It's just extra. Here I am. That means he was listening. Some of us need that message, the bonus material message right here. If God were to speak to you and to tell you what he wants you to do this Christmas, would you even hear him? Or do you have everything so planned out that you're focused on doing your, Are you even listening to him? Abraham says, here I am. And then God said, and do you wonder if he's testing what he loves? Take your son. I think that Abraham knows who he's talking about right at this moment. But look at what God says. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, you know, whom you love. Is that all necessary? Why is that there? In the Hebrew text, Isaac is actually the last part of this. It builds climactically. It builds an intimacy. It says, your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. He's testing what he loves. And I wonder for us, what would it be for us? If God were to speak to you and say, here's what I want to know. If you love me more than you love something I've given you, what would it be that he would ask you about? Would it be your son would it be your daughter, maybe your spouse, maybe it's your hope for a spouse, maybe it's your boyfriend or girlfriend, a hope for a boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe it's some other thing, maybe it's a dream you have in your life, maybe it's some other part of your life. What is it that you love the most in your life? The ultimate test here for Abraham is, do you love the gift or do you love the giver? You think about that at Christmas, we're going to get some gifts, gift exchanges are going to happen. Some of you might have extended family, you get together. I remember when I was a little kid, we'd go with all the aunts and uncles and some of them we didn't see any other time of the year. They'd give gifts. I loved the gift more than I loved the giver. I didn't even know the giver. I was like, cool, I got some stuff. But some of us are like that with God. Do we love the forgiveness or do we love the one who gave the forgiveness, the forgiver? Do we love the creation or do we love the creator? Do we love that our life has been blessed, that we have a family, that we have health, that we have whatever it is that we have that we count so good, our job, our reputation? Or do we love the one that's sovereignly in control and holds the universe in his hands and is graciously, because he can't undo his love, allowing us to live out this life to demonstrate his love? That's the question. His tests reveal what we love. What do you love? But his tests don't just reveal what we love. His tests reveal our obedience too. God's test reveals our obedience. I could have said God's test reveals our disobedience, but I'll think the best about all of us because it could go either way. It could be positive or negative, but God's tests reveal whether we'll obey because look at what he's being asked to do here. Again, in verse 2, then God said to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, testing his love, and go to the region of Moriah. Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. You don't know the location, but you're used to that, Abraham. I'll tell you when you get there. But he doesn't say, Abraham, dedicate Isaac to me. Like, just in your heart, I want to know that you mean it. He doesn't say, pray a prayer over him, have some ceremony. He doesn't say, Abraham, hand him over to me and I will kill him. Did you notice that? He says, I want you, Abraham, to kill your son. You go. And you do it. It's the actions. It's not just, I just don't want to just know. I want to see you do that. I want to know if your faith is real. James talks about this in the New Testament. What James is talking about, he's not talking about you earn love from God. He's not talking about this is how you become a Christian. is because you do certain things. But he's saying if you really believe stuff, actions in your life will happen. What James is doing is he's contrasting living versus dead faith. True faith versus fake faith. 
True faith being that which is genuine in our hearts. Dead faith being we just say stuff in our minds, but it's not real. And James says this. He talks about Abraham in this story. In James chapter 2, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And watch how he uses actions and faith synonymously. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. And was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. What God's looking for here is not just a prayer to him. He's saying, will you do this, Abraham? I want to see the actions. I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I want you to sacrifice him. But don't just sacrifice him as any offering. I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And try and put yourself in Abraham's position. Any ancient Middle Easterner who heard those words, a burnt offering, they knew what a burnt offering was. A burnt offering, to us, is just like another one of those things that starts the book of Leviticus, offering, grain offering, burnt offerings, all these different offerings. A burnt offering to an ancient Middle Easterner at that time, they would immediately picture it's gruesome and it means everything. The way you would do a burnt offering is you would start off by slitting the throat of whatever was being offered. Then you'd take your knife, you'd dismember whatever was being offered, and you'd put it on the altar and you'd burn it. The priest didn't get any of it. The person offering the sacrifice didn't get any of it. It was totally consumed on the altar. He's saying, you offer your son as a burnt offering. You want you to slit his throat. I want you to dismember his body, and then you're going to burn it. There's none left. I try and imagine what it was like to be Abraham in this situation. If God asked me to do this, I'm, I'm pretty sure I would think it was too much. I'm, I'm pretty confident that I would think, you, this is, you've gone too far now. I mean, this whole faith thing. I mean, I left my comfort zone. I will pass that test. I will leave my comfort zone, and I'll follow you. And I've messed up, and I've made some mistakes, but this is just too much, God. What do you, I mean, if it was you, what would you think in there? So what God's asking Abraham here is this, how far will you go in your obedience to me? How far will you go? And what you see is that God oftentimes pushes us past our limit when he tests us, when he tests our obedience. And if you don't think it's true, sometimes you hear people say cliche things like, God won't give you more than you can handle. I have some people at church I'd like to introduce you to. Um, We can do it out in the lobby and just ask them, is it further, is it more than you can handle right now? Because he does. What about Job? Job chapter 1. Talk about a test. He loses 10 kids in one day. There's a trial for you. I don't know if he was rejoicing like James talks about or what we imagine that James was talking about. He loses all of his businesses. You know what he says in chapter 2? He essentially says, I love the giver more than the gifts. When he tells his wife, can we accept good from the Lord and not bad also? That's what James is talking about. It doesn't mean he was celebrating the rejoicing. It says he knows that God is so good that God will use even this worst stuff for good. He passes the test. Well, Abraham passed the test. Would you pass the test? It's past his limit. Think about the disciples and the stuff that Jesus asked the disciples to do. You come follow me. Drop your nets. Come follow me. What did that mean to them? What do those nets represent? Everything, their job, their security, their name that they had built. What are you? I'm, I am a fisherman. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to change all that. And so they had to walk away from their comfort. They had to walk away from their security. If you think that God's plan for your life is your comfort, you are mistaken. God cares about every hair on your head. He is compassionate and kind. It's not that he doesn't care, but his plan for you and his mission for you is far greater than your comfort and your convenience. And if your goal for Christmas is that, and you're going to walk by faith, it will be dangerous because you'll put all that at risk, because he doesn't promise your comfort. 
And so he does it with the disciples. And then what happens with the disciples? Oh, come watch me do ministry. And I'm going to have you go, us? We don't know how to do You don't think that was pressure? And then they do it. And then what you see is then God starts putting them in circumstances that pushes them past their limit. What about when they're in the boat with Jesus and the storm's so bad that professional fishermen think they're going to die and Jesus is sleeping? And if you read that, they ask the question, don't you care? Why are you sleeping? You don't, don't you even care about us? Then Jesus wakes up, calms the storm, and then they ask a question. Who is this? Great question. That even the wind and the waves obey him. Implied question, do you and I obey him? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Do we, is what the disciples are asking, do we obey him? He's testing their faith as he pushes them past their limit. What do you think it was like for the disciples before Jesus rose from the dead, while he was in the grave? And did you think they thought to themselves, did we just waste three years of our lives? We walked away from the jobs. We did lay left everything. Was this, or even if we're supposed to continue on, then now it's all on us? The apostle Paul writes a bunch of the New Testament. And you know what he says in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1? Second Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says this, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, people he cares about. I don't want you to think that this doesn't happen. About the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia, we were under great pressure. Get this next phrase. Far beyond our ability to endure. So that we despised even of life. It was, he was in one of those moments where it's like, uh, if you're coming back, Jesus, now would be great. Or death would be an option. And he says this. Next verse. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened, and here's the reason, that we might not rely on ourselves because we couldn't handle it. We couldn't endure it, but on God. So it would increase our faith, the God who raises the dead, so that we would trust in him. That's why God pushed us beyond our limits. What about you? Have you ever been there? I was preaching about this about five or six years ago. I was in Madagascar. I was preaching to a bunch of missionaries uh, from the Southern Baptist Convention. We were there, and I didn't know all of them. I didn't know all their stories, uh, but I was talking about how God will take us past our limit. And he does, and why he does that. And afterwards, a missionary came up to me that I had never met before. He was ministering in Mozambique, primarily to Muslims. And he and I just sat down, and he wanted me to give him some advice and just talk through some of the stuff that was happening in his life. And he started to share with me what it was like. And he said, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I thought it was going to be like when I just said that, you know, you're sitting in a missions conference, and you're thinking, I'm going to go be a missionary, and all these people are going to get saved, and the world's going to be different. And he said, we had hardly seen any conversions. And... While they were there, he said, I spend 50% of my time at least just trying to survive. By survive, he meant killing deadly snakes that were outside their house every day, um, hiding weapons inside their house because of the threat that they were under. Uh, he talked about how there would be people in town, they would want his daughters. He had two teenage daughters, and he said that, you know, they offer me goats and things to try and buy my daughters. He's not interested in their goats, in case you were wondering. It wasn't really a temptation for him. But he knew these men wanted to take his daughters there was constant pressure. He said when he wanted to come back home uh, on a break, he said when they would close the door on the plane, it was like they lifted weights off of my shoulders. There was this constant pressure. And so I didn't know what to tell him. I, didn't, I just listened to him. We started a friendship, and we communicate periodically. He sent me a, a note about a month ago now. He's now in a different location uh, ministering, uh, primarily in a Muslim context. He's not allowed to share what the location is, so it's real secret, but he sent me a private message. And he said, in the past year, we've seen 700 people come to know Christ. 500 of them have been baptized. Just this morning, he sent me a note and said they saw 21 people come to Christ this week, had a demon possession. They, cast out, they saw a demon cast out and saw somebody get healed this week. 
Now, as someone who's like living here in the States, right, and it's a lot more comfortable than killing deadly snakes outside my door. It might be a pothole on my way to work, but it's not quite the same. I look at that and I see what's happening in my friend's life. And what I think is happening, I just step back from it, is God was preparing you back then for what he's now doing here. And so some of you, God's got you, you're past your limit, maybe with your kids, or you're past your limit, maybe in your finance. God's pushing you past your limit. A whole thing is some circumstances. He's testing you, testing your obedience now, and maybe preparing you for what's going to come later. And so what's the steps of obedience? Maybe you're a new believer. The steps of obedience are real clear at the beginning. If you don't know Jesus, it's not about, you know, give him more money or stop swearing. It's not that kind of, so you trust Jesus as your Savior. That's the first step. Then after that, it's real clear. The next step is get baptized. Then after that, it gets real messy because we're all different. And so for some people, it's a generosity issue. And for some people, it's a purity issue. And for some people, you need to go forgive somebody. And for some people, you need to love your enemy. But they're all scary. They're all dangerous steps. And so what is it for you? God's test will reveal our love. It will reveal our obedience. And God's test will also reveal what we hold back. God's test will reveal what we're holding back from him. And that's what we see in the last part of this passage from Abraham. And I'm just going to read to you verses 13 through 14. God's tests reveal what we withhold. That's the third point. And in verses 3 through 14, I'm going to read it to you. I'll just make some comments as we go through, just some observations of the passage. But you see here what Abraham withholds. It says, after he gets what I would consider a ridiculous command, go sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love, testing your love, Isaac, You've been waiting for, and now he's here, and you've been able to enjoy him. And I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. I want to see your obedience. And then what happens, verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. (laughs) Pause right there. First of all, if I'm told to do something I know I don't want to do, I all of a sudden come up with this gift of procrastination. Remember doing that? It's like, oh, that's got, got to mow the yard. I don't know. There's something I can check the mail. If we deal with the garbage. Like, there's other things I can do. He gets up early. But it says, though, that he got up, which uh, Anne Graham Lotz has written a book on Abraham called The Magnificent Obsession. Some of you know Anne. She's a member of our church here. Uh, she points out in, that, in this passage, the fact that it says that he got up means he was asleep. So he slept the night. He, so he gets this command, then he goes to sleep. Now, how many people would sleep and how many people would lay there and just stare at the ceiling all night if you had just been told this command? How is it that Abraham can sleep? And let me share something with you. I've struggled before. I've not slept before and then come and preached here. The night, so I've gone sleepless nights. Some of you, it's a medical issue. I understand that. Most people, it's a faith issue. It's because you're trying to control stuff that you're not in control of. God is sovereignly in control. And because Abraham trusts God's sovereign control, he slept like a baby the night before. He wakes up early, and then it says, he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, of course, because Isaac is the sacrifice. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Verse 4, on the third day, pause, three days journey. Plenty of time to doubt plenty of time to change your mind. This is not just an impulsive decision by Abraham. He's over 100 years old. I don't know. The story, the Bible doesn't tell me this. I'm pretty confident, though. They probably didn't just go straight through for three days at 100 years old. He probably took some breaks. I bet you they didn't go over through the night. They probably stopped and stayed the night. And so I can imagine them having a campfire as they go to sleep at night and him looking across at Isaac that he's going to offer as a burnt offering. What do you think went through Abraham's mind over those three days? How many times do you think in his head he's already sacrificed Isaac? 
It says, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And so it doesn't look like God said something to him. Maybe just put it in his heart. That's the spot. And he said to his servants, Abraham did, here's these two guys that are helping them travel. Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Then notice the pronouns here. We will worship him. Well, we will worship and we will come back to you. Not we will worship and I will come back to you. It's probably what I would have said if I were Abraham and I made it even this far. We will worship and we will come back to you. How can Abraham possibly say that statement? Now pause from Genesis chapter 22 and the New Testament gives us some commentary on this. And so this is a really awesome verse. In the book of Hebrews, if you don't have time to turn there, just at least write down Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. You go read it later, but in the book of Hebrews, we'll put it up on the screen. The New Testament author tells us exactly what Abraham was thinking here in verse 5. When he says, we will worship and we will come back. How could that happen? Well, think of the tension that's happening here. Not only is he losing his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves. Yeah, that's true. Any father, this would be tough. But remember, Isaac is the one who he's been given the promise it's through Isaac, the whole world's going to be blessed. The Savior's going to come. And then God tells him to command, go kill him. So on the one hand, I'm promised that God's going to bless the world through Isaac. On the other hand, I'm commanded to kill him. Do you ever look at, and things don't make sense to you? Your job's not to figure them all out, by the way. It doesn't make sense. I don't know how this works. I don't have all the Bible verses figured out. How does this verse work or that verse? And I don't know. And if everybody claims to know, probably above their pay grade when they're doing that, we don't know. And Abraham doesn't know. So how do you live? Abraham shows us here. By faith, Abraham, when tested, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. That's what's going to happen in the story. He who had received the promises, three of them, was promised, or he who received the promises was about to sacrifice the one and only son. It's going to break the promises, isn't it? Like, how do you keep your promise, God? Verse 18, even though God had said to him, in case you're not getting this, the New Testament author is making it clear, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So what was he thinking? Verse 19, Abraham reasoned, he thought, that God could raise the dead. Time out. Like, this is pre-Lazarus. This is pre-Jesus. To our knowledge, no one had been raised to the dead to this point. Abraham couldn't reconcile how God could promise this and command this. How many excuses did he have to not follow through? God can do the impossible. I'm going to trust God. He said, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. From death. That's how in verse 5 he can say, we will go and we will come back. But he, he, would, he knew he was going to. Well, just read. Read the next part. Verse 6. Abraham took the wood, and the burnt offering, he placed it on his son Isaac. So we know Isaac was not just a small child. He could carry the wood up the mountainside and have an intelligent conversation with his dad here in a moment too. And he himself carried the fire and the knife, so he's got the instruments of wrath, of execution. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. So how awkward has it been that they haven't been talking so far? It's the first thing that gets said. Then Isaac says this, the fire and the water here. Oh, I knew this was coming. If I was Abraham, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse eight, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. Underline that. We'll come back to it. Provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
And the two of them went on together. Now, do you think Abraham really believed that? He just, oh, be quiet, kid. I'll figure this out later. He's going through what he's going to say to him. I think he believed it. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac. Now, wait a second. Isaac's 15 or 20 years old. Abraham's over 100. I'm pretty sure Isaac could take Abraham. If not, he can at least outrun him. Most people don't talk about Isaac in this passage. Isaac had some incredible faith too. He lays himself down willingly. His father doesn't take his life. He lays it down. And he gets tied to this altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, talking about Abraham. reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. So he's got the knife. Remember, he's going to slit his throat. He's going to dismember his body and he's going to burn it. So he's got the knife up. In Abraham's mind, his son is as good as dead. And as he's got his hand up in the air, then the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham, it's urgent call, double name. And then notice what Abraham says back. I think we've heard these words before, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Sound like verse 1? Here I am. He replied, here I am. I'm listening. Some of us, even when we're doing God's work, we get so far, are we listening to what he has to say to us? Here I am, because God changes the plan mid-course here. But I was so sure you wanted me to offer him. I'm just going to go ahead and do that because I know that you said that and then we'll figure this out after. No, stop. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. You know Isaac, whom you love. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram. Underline that caught by his horns. He went over, took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And so Abraham didn't withhold anything. Now how is that? Why is it that Abraham doesn't withhold anything from God? Not even his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves. And God's testing his love, he's testing his obedience, but how come he doesn't hold anything back? The, the passage gives us the answer. It's because he trusts in God's provision. Think about why we hold stuff back. Why won't we give money? Why won't we hand over our kids? Why won't we let our dreams go? Because we don't trust that God will give us a better plan. We don't trust that if we hand over the money, we're going to have enough stuff. If we hand over the kid, we're going to have enough. If we give this dream over, we don't trust his provision. But what do we see in this passage? Verse 5, how is it that he's able to say, we will come back? Because he trusted, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, that God would provide, even if God had to do the impossible in order to do it. Because God keeps his promises. In verse 7, when Isaac says to him, where's the lamb? Why in verse 8 does he say, God will provide the lamb? Because he trusts God's provision. Then verse 13, we see the provision of a ram, not a lamb. Then verse 14, twice it says there, provision, provision. The Lord provided. And on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. It's like the author screaming to us, hey, this was a test of Abraham. And he passed because he trusts God's provision. And so you want to be able to not withhold anything from God? You want to be able to obey God? You want to love God with all your heart? And then you trust he's going to provide for you? Do you trust he's going to take care of you? Do you trust he wants what's best for you? Has God provided for you in the past? I'm studying this passage this week and I'm thinking about my own life. And I mentioned to you, I had some blood drawn for a physical. Anytime I get blood drawn, it's like I pass those memorial stones that you see in the Old Testament or those mountains that get named like here in this passage, the Lord on the mountain of the Lord will be provided. Because some of you know our story, my wife and I's story, and some of you don't. 
And for those of you who already know the story, I, I'm just going to repeat some of the details. For those of you who don't, when my wife and I were moving here to plant this church, my wife got diagnosed with HIV. And we were pregnant for our first child and not expecting that at all. We had been faithful to one another. And she was a nurse, but she had never been pricked by a needle. And we just were taken totally off guard and overwhelmed. And first questions are, how is this possible? Why would you do this? And then we were wondering, is our baby going to have it? And so we called the doctor. And the doctor uh, had told us that we tested your blood three times. It came back HIV positive all three times. We need you to come back in. We're going to do some more tests. We're going to talk about how the baby can be born without having this disease. And, and we were overwhelmed. That took us into a spiral of um, dark days and spiritual battle. And I remember thinking, well, that ministries, and that's not an option now. Who wants an HIV pastor visiting them at the hospital? Like, how's that going to happen? That's not going to happen. We're going to have to do something else. And all kinds of stuff went through our minds and in our hearts. And we went back in. We got Shannon's blood tested again. And then for the next couple of days, had spiritual battle unlike we had ever experienced before in our lives up until that point. And after a couple of days, they called us back and said, uh, the new test came back HIV negative. And so how's that possible? I said, well, we don't know. And they did some, med- my wife's a nurse, and so they were telling her some of the medical stuff. I said, well, we tested the other blood three times. It came back HIV positive all three times. And they even did the Western blot test, which they said is like the gold seal test. And they said, uh, so we're very confident you're positive, but now it's negative. We don't know. Well, we wanted to tell you about these results. We're going to do some more tests. You come back in tomorrow. And so they did some more tests. They came back negative again. We went in to meet with the doctor to talk to him what happened. They said, we tested your blood three times and came back HIV positive all three times. Then we took those new samples of blood and it came back negative. We didn't know what to think. So we tested them again. They were negative again. Shared that information with you. Then we went back and we tested the first samples of blood. All they did was sit in the lab the whole time. They came back negative now too. I said, what happened? I said, we don't know. I said, you, you know what I know? We experienced a resurrection of sorts. It's a new life. I believe he gave us new blood. Because God can do the impossible. If anybody ever tells you he can't or he doesn't do that anymore, he just did it in the Bible, stop listening to them. They're like faith suckers. Don't listen to those people. God provided for us. So then I asked myself the question, all right, I just had that test. It was just a reminder of your provision. How could I possibly hold anything back from you? Because I do. When I know that you provide, has God provided for you, is my question to you. And before you answer, before you even answer, in case you might be thinking no, let me go back to the passage. It said here, remember, Abraham asked the, or Isaac asked Abraham the question, where's the lamb? Verse 7. In verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide the lamb. But then did you see in verse 13, he didn't provide a lamb. He provided a ram. It's not a lamb. Abraham looked up and they all stood in the thicket and they saw a ram. Why is that? This is a foreshadowing of the Christmas story. It's Jesus Christ is the lamb. Matthew chapter 1, the story of Jesus. Who's Jesus? What does John say? John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's all a picture of what Jesus Christ is going to do. Ultimately, the Christmas story is just a cute little story if Easter doesn't happen, by the way. And what happens is there's another son. See, the father doesn't ask Abraham to do anything that he himself will not do. And so the father gives up his son, his one and only son, for God so loved the world. And that son carries the wood on his back, the cross. And he goes up a mountain, Calvary. And no one takes his life. He lays it down. And he gets nailed to a tree to die for you and me. So if you've been provided for, what does Romans chapter 8 say in verse 32? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how much more will he also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
You need something, he will, he will give it. I'm not talking about your comfort. I'm not talking about all your conveniences. But you need something in order to pass the tests of faith. You need something in order to fulfill the mission he has for your life. You need something to fulfill the plan that God has for you. He's going to provide. He gave his son for you. So what's the next faith step for you? Did he provide for you? The answer is yes. Maybe you saw it. Maybe you didn't see it. Maybe you've seen it in ways here. Maybe you haven't noticed. But he did. This whole story is actually pointing us to Jesus Christ. In front of us, the child is born, the son is given, Jesus. And the weight of the world will be on his shoulders. And your sin. And when Jesus died on the cross, there wasn't a last second angel of the Lord that showed up and said, oh, stop, 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 there's a ram over here. No, he is the lamb. There's not a substitute. He is the substitute. He's your substitute and mine because we're the ones that deserve to die on the cross because of the sin in our life. But there's a substitute that comes, and he's the sacrifice for our sins. Some of you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. That is your faith step. It's by trusting that what he did on the cross for you at that moment paid for your sins. And his love can't be undone by anything you do now, but you have to receive the gift of eternal life that he's offering you. You need to trust Christ as your Savior. That is your faith step. It is my joy to introduce you to Jesus. And some of you have been waiting. Why wouldn't you trust Jesus today? That is my question. I've been going to church here for years, some of you. Why not today? Why not trust Jesus? He's offering you the gift. Why wouldn't you take it? You're, it's not about you being worthy. And it's not really a question about whether he did it or not. Why wouldn't you trust Jesus as your Savior? Let's just all bow our heads. If you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, now is your moment to do that. Some of you have trusted Jesus as your Savior. You're not done taking faith steps. And so you talk to the Lord right now. What faith step does God want you to take? Not just this Christmas, today, right now. For those of you who need to trust Jesus as your Savior, I'm just going to pray a prayer. I'm going to acknowledge sin before God. And then I'm going to ask God to forgive me of my sin and uh, based on my belief in what he did on the cross, I'm going to ask him to have eternal life. I'm doing that on behalf of you. And so if you're watching online, just pray this prayer with me. Or you're in Theater 14 or you're right here in the room that I'm in right now, just pray this prayer with me if you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner and uh, I need a Savior. I believe your son Jesus was my Savior. He's the substitute. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe, like we sang earlier, he rose from the dead. And I want to accept his gift of eternal life. And if you want to ask Jesus to be your Savior, just pray that prayer right now. And if you're praying that prayer, if you just prayed that prayer, if you'd please let us know on your worship program before you leave, I want to give you some more information about the face steps ahead of you. We don't want you just to be born into the family of God and then prematurely die. We don't want you dying in the nursery. We want you to grow in your faith. And some of the rest of you need to make faith decisions. You keep talking to the Lord about that. Ask him if he wants to make decisions about obedience or decisions about things you need to hand over, something you've been holding back. Maybe he's been speaking to your heart for a long time and you just haven't done it. And today's the day. 